Years ago, I had lunch with a consultant. He had a successful business working with sales executives around the country. In fact, he was in so much demand that he interviewed prospective clients rather than the other way around. I asked him what made a good sales executive, and he said they were good with people, they listened well, they knew their products inside and out, and they were also resilient because you get a lot more no's than you do yeses when you work in sales. And then he said something that got my attention. He said all good sales executives have these qualities, but what separates the good ones from the great ones is that the great ones are intentional. And then he gave me an example. He said about 3% of Americans are rich. Unless they do something stupid, they will always have enough money and not need to think about it. And then he said another 10% are what you would call well-off. They may need to be a little careful, but they will live comfortably for the remaining days that they're around. But most people, he said, around 60% live paycheck to paycheck. In fact, many would struggle to come up with the money that they might need to take care of a major um, unexpected home repair. And then he said the final 27% are dependent on someone else, many through no fault of their own. And then he asked me a question. He said, what separates the top two categories from the bottom two categories? And I didn't know, and he told me the top two categories had a plan. And then he said, what separates the rich from the well-off? And the difference, he said, was that the rich wrote that plan down. Now, to be transparent, I tried a number of years later to try to find that study he quoted, and I couldn't. So I don't even know if it exists. But I think it makes the point that if you want to accomplish anything in life, you need to be intentional. That's why the consultant told me the most important thing that he did with his clients is to hold them accountable. He said, I make sure they stick to the plan, and if they do, they will be successful. Last week, we started looking at a series of obscure books in the Old Testament, books the Hebrew people called the Twelve that are often today called the Minor Prophets. One of these is a very short book called Haggai. It's just two chapters. A couple of weeks ago, as I reread the book, I thought back to that consultant that I had lunch with so many years ago. And that's because Haggai played a role in the life of the nation of Israel, much like that consultant played with his clients. Haggai's book isn't littered with inspirational ideas. He doesn't have many memorable lines. His role, it seems, was holding the people accountable, of reminding them of what they already knew they should be doing, and making sure they stuck to the plan. First, just a little background on Haggai, because we really don't know very much. But like all prophets, we're told that he spoke for God. And apparently, he spoke with great authority. He was an inspirational leader. As we'll see in a moment, he was also effective at pointing people to the priorities that they needed most to focus on. And he came along at a transitional time in the life of the nation of Israel. Seventy years or so earlier, in 586 BC, the Babylonians had defeated, destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. They ended up deporting about 50,000 of Israel's leaders to Babylon. Now, it's, it's uh, hard to overemphasize the importance that the temple had in Jewish life. Physically imposing, it was a magnificent structure with elaborate ornamentation. And for 400 years, it had served as the center of worship for the nation. It represented God's presence among the people, the place for proper worship and the focus for religious and political life. Its destruction was devastating in every way because it destroyed their identity as a people. The only possible comparison that we might make and come up with is 9-11, when the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and probably either the Capitol or the White House, were targeted by terrorists. Together, these buildings represented US economic, military, and political power. And so their destruction was a psychological blow to our American identity. 
But for the Jews, the destruction of the temple was a hundred, maybe even a thousand times worse. And for almost 70 years, it was nothing more than a pile of rubble. For years, the people lived with deep sadness, remembering longingly the days when they had been able to go to the temple to worship God. But as years went by, fewer and fewer people could even remember those days. But there were a few who had an optimistic vision. and These were the prophets that God sent to remind the people that there was still hope, that one day God would bring the people back to Jerusalem. And when he did, they'd rebuild the city and the temple, and God would once again dwell among them. And then it happened. In 539 BC, the Persian king Cyrus led an army that conquered Babylon. And a year later, in 538 BC, he made a startling decision. In an effort to win over the people to his vast new kingdom, he tried a novel strategy, religious toleration. So he allowed the Jewish exiles, most of whom had never seen Jerusalem or lived in the land, to return. He even gave them permission to once again be worshiping their God, something that had previously been suppressed. And then, shockingly, he gave them funds to begin to rebuild their temple. So some of the people went back immediately and got started. And hopes were high, future seemed bright, although actually not very much happened. On August 29th, 520 BC, and yes, we really do know the date, nearly 20 years after the people returned to the land, Haggai had had enough. He started by bluntly challenging a view that must have been common among the people at the time. In verse 2 he says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Now Haggai's ticked here because it's almost 20 years after they've been in the land and they've made precious little progress on rebuilding the temple. And their first excuse is, it's not the right time. Now by saying these people and not my people, what Haggai is revealing is that God is unhappy. And this idea of not my time that the people say, well, God disagrees. And sometimes we make that mistake as well. You see, there's never a perfect time for anything. If it's the right thing, it's the right time. Then Haggai uncovers the real reason why they've been procrastinating. In verse 4, he says, it is, is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? So here's what had happened. When they'd returned 18, 19 years earlier, they first built homes for their families, and it was the right first step. But they had taken this home building thing a little too far, adding elaborate features like carved wood panelings while the temple lay in ruins. So Haggai challenges their priorities. He says, are your homes more important than the temple, paneled walls, than your allegiance to God? And then there's a second objection they raise, and that is that it's a recession. Verse 6, Haggai writes, you have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So apparently their recent harvests had been meager. and There wasn't enough food or clothing for everyone. Now God doesn't really agree because he's just pointed out that they had enough money to finish off their homes in grand style. So it's then that Haggai uses a phrase that he repeats several times in the book, five different times, when he says, give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. So remember the consultant I talked about earlier who said what he said about being intentional? Well, that's exactly what Haggai is saying here. It's easy to go with the flow, but he wants them to stop and reassess their priorities. So in verse 8, he tells them to get started. 
Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. So when they get started, God's pleased because getting started is on the road toward finishing the project, but they also need to finish. Along the way, though, Haggai reminds them of why it is that they are experiencing the economic hardship that they're experiencing. In verses 9 to 11, he tells them the reason the land's so productive or unproductive is because God has lifted his hand of blessing. So if they just begin to obey again, he would lift the lid on their crop yields and they'd have enough. So in these first 12, 11, 12 verses, Haggai delivers a blunt message, but it works. And on September 21st, 520 BC, we're told this, the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the message of the prophet Haggai, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. But even though they got off to a good start, their enthusiasm quickly faded because a month later, on October 17, 520 BC, they were already grumbling. Why? Well, because the temple they were building on wasn't very impressive. Apparently, there were a few old-timers who had seen Solomon's temple, and they weren't impressed with this new one. So when they made disparaging remarks, morale plummeted. Haggai caught wind of this and jumped in. And speaking for God, he said, Be strong in all you people, all you people of the land and work, for I am with you. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So he says God's with us. He's with us just like he was when we left Egypt all those years ago. And he's with us now. And then Haggai tries to inspire them. He says, if you keep at it, here's what God says he will do. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord. What Haggai is reminding them of is the great prophetic promises that earlier prophets had brought to the people. That God had promised to do something remarkable. One day he will shake things up. He will overthrow hostile kingdoms. He'll rearrange the world's power structure. And then he will bless not only Israel, but all nations on earth. And in the end, there will be peace and prosperity and justice for all. So he tells them, keep at it. Two months later, another problem surfaces. On December 18, 520 BC, God once again prompts Haggai to bring a message to the people. And the issue this time, well, it's moral integrity. To understand this one, you need just a little bit of background. And that is that Jewish law had a number of stipulations. And one of those is that if a purified item touched an unpurified item, the first item, the one that was pure, would then become impure. So let me just give you an example. One of the provisions was is that if you touched a dead body, you would be considered impure and have to go through a purification process. Now let's just say that your uncle died and your grandfather asked you and a brother and a cousin to bury your uncle. By doing that, you would become contaminated and anything you touched would be impure. The principle here is that uncleanliness is more contagious than holiness. So some working on the temple, however, had flipped that equation. They thought that by working on the temple, the holiest of all holy buildings, that would make them pure. 
even if after work they went out and partied. Haggai said that's not the way it works. In fact, he says it's the opposite. So if you're impure and you end up working on the temple, you make the temple impure. But his message was really applied more broadly than just to their work on the temple. Only if they got their act together and humbled themselves, pursuing righteousness and justice and peace, would they experience the blessings that God intended for them. But if they would do what's right, he said, from this day on, I will bless you. The book ends with things hanging. It's not exactly sure what happens. There's some questions that still remain. Will Haggai's generation be faithful to God? Will they see the fulfillment of everything that he and others had predicted? This to-be-continued ending does have a couple of postscripts because we know that Zerubbabel, the political leader at the time, was able to finish the temple four years later. In fact, that temple, that version of the temple, would last with some modifications until the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. But even more important is that Haggai's message that one day the temple would be overshadowed by another temple would be fulfilled figuratively in Jesus. Jesus told his disciples that he was building a new temple, that when he entered the temple to drive out the money changers, he said, I'll destroy this temple and raise it again in three days. And then John, the biographer, says the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus, not the temple, is now the place of God's presence and proper place of worship. So what can we learn from Haggai? Well, first of all, our choices really matter. So we need to be intentional about the way we live our lives. Secondly, our faithfulness here and now is part of God's plan to see that his will is done here on earth as it is in heaven. And thirdly, what should motivate us to get busy in starting the job that God's given us to do is the blessings he promised us as we move our way through life. The task of each generation is to be intentional and courageous, to give careful thought to our ways, to take up whatever it is that God has given us to, and to not give up until it's done. Amen.